What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Ali Hamed is the co-founder of CoVenture, an asset management firm focused on deploying capital across venture capital and unique credit strategies. In this conversation, we discuss the private credit market, how borrowers and lenders are treating each other, where the areas of opportunities will be, how founders can respond to the pandemic, and how source data in advertising and e-commerce has given Ali a better sense of the trends in those industries. I really enjoyed this conversation, and Ali didn't disappoint. Before we get into the episode, though, I want to quickly talk about the two sponsors. The first is BlockFi. You guys know I love this company. I'm an investor, a user, and generally a big fan. You can go to BlockFi.com POMP and try out one of their three products. You can put in cryptocurrency and get a US dollar loan. You can deposit cryptocurrency and receive up to 8.6% APY, or you can go buy and sell cryptocurrency through their crypto exchange. They right now are running a special where if you go and you deposit $250 in a newly created account and hold it there for three months to earn interest, they'll give you $50 free in Bitcoin. No brainer. So head on over to BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP and check them out. You'll not be disappointed. BlockFi.com slash POMP. Next is BlockSet. If you're building in the blockchain space, I want you to know about BlockSet. Their goal is to enable the next wave of developers and business leaders to build amazing applications. BlockSet offers accessible data from all the major chains through a simple, easy-to-use API. It acts as your hosted blockchain infrastructure, and it ultimately enables high-quality operas to be built at a fraction of the cost in a fraction of the time. So go sign up for a free developer account at BlockSet.com and start building today. BlockSet is built by BRD, or Brett, the first wallet in the App Store from 2014 and one of the largest in the space today. They've taken the architecture and knowledge they've gained over the past six years to create BlockSet, a robust, reliable, and strategic B2B offering for developers and enterprises. Thanks to BlockSet, we can all build with crypto assets at light speed using their unified API that is data from all the major chains. See just how simple it is by visiting BlockSet.com and sign up for a free account today. BlockSet.com. All right, now let's get into this episode with Ali. I hope you guys enjoy it. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I have uh, the one and only Mr. Ali here. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Anthony. I feel like we are uh, so close in New York City, but yet so far away with you in Brooklyn and me in Manhattan and uh, just the water separating us with the quarantine. I know. It's crazy. What Do you think it's better to be in Brooklyn or Manhattan right now? Uh, well, according to the numbers, they're both bad. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what's less bad? I think I think Brooklyn might be winning, man. Like, there's a little bit more space. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. All right, guys. Ali is one of my best friends. So this is gonna be a lot of fun. Um, you are uh, the founder of uh, CoVenture. Maybe give us a quick update. What is CoVenture? What are you guys doing right now? Yeah. So at CoVenture, um, we do both venture capital and we do asset-based credit. Um, in when I say asset-based credit, what we do is we find sort of novel asset classes or asset classes that have never been financed before in an institutional way. Uh, and then we lend against those assets. Um, so some of the types of things that we finance are perishable produce, YouTube libraries, 
you know, uh, streaming revenues, e-commerce ad spend, all kinds of sort of um, off the wall stuff. And in venture capital, we do early stage investing, primarily in fintech, primarily in sort of newer economies. That might be the YouTube economy or the Spotify economy or the Thumbtack economy, et cetera, um, or anything where there's sort of some new invention of an asset class. Um, so that's what we do as a firm. We've been doing it for a handful of years. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that's a summary of us. Awesome. Uh, so I want to start first with the credit markets, because I think a lot of people, one, uh, don't understand it, and two, don't realize the impact uh, that COVID will have on it. They're usually focused on equities, either public or private equities. Um, maybe just give us a quick overview of like, what is the credit market? And what's the difference between the public credit market and the private credit market? Sure. So, um, so credit markets are pretty broad, right? There's broadly debt and equity. You know, equity, you sell a percentage of your company and the person gets a future prof, you know, profit interest um, in perpetuity. And credit, you borrow money and you owe some fixed rate of return in the future. And, um, you know, credit uh, markets right now, public credit markets are being hit more than private markets for now. And that'll change. And the reason is people can respond to speculation. So in private credit, you really only have issues when someone was supposed to make an interest payment and they don't or they're supposed to have some sort of asset coverage or there's some sort of covenant in an agreement that gets breached. An example of a covenant might be, you know, indirect lending, right? So you always hear like private equity companies um, are levering up their businesses. What it might mean is a leveraged buyout occurred, a private equity firm put up $100 million of equity, they borrowed $200, 000, $200 million of equity to complete the transaction of $300 million in total. Um, and one of the covenants of the lender is to say, we're expecting this private equity business to pay our $200 million back plus interest with some percentage of the profits. And so there'll be some sort of debt to income um, ratio that they're uh, purchasing or, or levering up um, or lending against. And then there's covenants around what kind of EBITDA levels that company needs to maintain. And if they don't maintain those um, EBITDA levels, then the lender can say, okay, now we're gonna go take over the business and default on the loan. So that's an example of a covenant. Or another example might be, hey, you have to pay us your you know, interest every quarter, every month. Um, that's private markets. In public markets, what people are, you know, are speculating. So for example, let's imagine there's something like a mortgage-backed security. So um, there might be a public um, security that what it does is it owns a building. And there's some equity layer, right, which is like the actual owners of that building. And they may say, I own a building. The building's worth $100 million and I'm going to put up $20 million of equity and the debt providers are gonna put up $80 million of equity. Now, one of the covenants in that agreement might be that um, the $80 million always needs to be secured by $20 million of equity subordination. Well, you know, if the building is sort of sitting there and nothing's really changed in private markets, there's gonna be all this sort of hemming and hawing of people saying, well, the building's still worth the same and once this is all over, it's all, it's all gonna be okay. In public markets, you can see a change on a daily basis. And so the public markets do is they speculate on whether or not the economy will come back. And then if the price of that um, equity goes down, then the lender says, aha, you know, I need to be secured by 20% of equity. I'm no longer secured by that. And you need to either give me the building, which would be pretty shitty, or um, you need to raise more equity so that I have more equity cushion. And the problem is when your share price is going down, or when your security price is going down uh, and you have to raise more equity, that's like the worst possible time to raise it. And so what you're seeing is credit markets um, in public markets are um, reacting more quickly because the reaction is either a lack of liquidity because maybe some of these um, mortgage-backed securities can't 
pay their interest. Um, some of it is speculation. In some cases, you're seeing, um, you know, pri or, or corporate companies uh, say, you know, I or, or borrowers are saying, I don't believe that, you know, Carnival Cruises is going to be able to make its interest payments. And so you're seeing the bonds trade off because let's imagine I had, let's imagine I was Carnival and I don't know what their bonds are trading at right now. But I said, hey, I'm going to issue $100 of debt and I'm going to pay 5% interest on that debt. Yesterday or two months ago, getting paid 5% might have been okay, but Carnival is now riskier. And so what someone might demand is I want to get paid 10%. Well, the way that that would happen is the bond price will go down. So Anthony, if you owned a bond that was worth $100 that was paying 5%, I would buy it from you for something under $100 because if I buy it from you for say, you know, $99, then I'm getting 5% plus, you know, that spread of the discount that I bought it at. So you're starting to see the reaction in public markets happen a lot more in private markets. It hasn't, there hasn't been as many defaults yet because it just hasn't been enough time. Right. So there's like all this sort of news cycle around, well, people aren't making their rent payments this month. I think probably in private markets, people are going to, they're not gonna be happy about it, but they'll say, okay, fine. If you miss an interest payment, we get it. Like, a virus is going around destroying the world. Like that's not so good. If it happens another month, I think it'll maybe be okay. If it happens a third month, that's when you'll start to see stuff break. And the last part is in private markets, the borrower and lender relationship are maybe a little bit more um, sort of close knit where, you know, like if you have, if you've securitized your assets, who do you argue with all your shareholders of the securitization? I don't know. But if you have a private lender, and you can call them and say, hey, look, you know, person, I know I owe you money. You can either foreclose on my assets and then maybe get some percentage of your money back, or you can let me work this out with you and I'll pay you later. Maybe, you know, I think those are the conversations that are starting to happen. Yeah. So what's interesting to me is, um, first of all, the relationship you're talking about here in the public markets, there's and at times thousands of people who hold this stuff. And this is, could be for companies or even uh, the MTA was saying that, you know, uh, ridership of the subway is down 90% and they're worried that they don't have the revenue to pay their bonds and things like that. So that's a very different type of relationship uh, and also um, kind of lender than if uh, you look in the private markets. In the private markets, is it safe to say that in almost all of these relationships, you're talking about one single borrower being a, a company or corporation, and then there's just one lender uh, per relationship. Um, and maybe a company has multiple lenders, but really it's kind of a one-to-one. -one. You're not seeing any sort of like, hey, I took money from an SPV and, and then I've got to deal with all the shareholders on the other side of the SPV. It, it, it depends. And so it's a whole spectrum. I mean, the, in the simplest sense, there might be a borrower and there's a lender and there's only one lender in the whole deal and the borrower has a direct relationship. And if the borrower has a really good relationship with that lender, they may say, look, we've been working together for 10 to 15 years. Um, you don't want to blow up. I don't want to blow up. If you force me to do all the things that are in the covenant packages of this loan, I'm going to default. And, you know, if you're a fund, you don't want your borrowers to default. You kind of look dumb. Or it might be a lender who that's the whole reason they do this. They're hoping you default because if you default, they get to own equity in your business. And so knowing who your lender is and what your lender's sort of goal was is pretty important. You know, and then, and then next is also understanding the, the situation your lender is in. So if your lender is exposed to a ton of shit, stuff that's like sort of hitting the fan, that's not so good because they might be acting uh, reaction in a reactionary way. Or if stuff's hitting the fan, you may be the least of their problems and they just don't want one more default. It's really hard to kind of figure that out. The other thing is, is your lender levered? 
right? So if your lender gave you money and they gave you $100 million, but only $20 million of it was theirs, and they have a bank who gave them $80 million, you know, in many ways, leverage is not good because it magnifies losses. Another reason leverage isn't good is you're not the boss of yourself. Like, you know, usually when we do a deal, we're senior lenders. Um, part of the reason we do that is because, you know, we don't want to take more risk than we need to take. And the other part is, like, let's imagine I have a portfolio company that has an issue. I almost always know more about what's going on with that company than some bank who might be lending to me where they got like my investment committee memo and my data room and all this stuff, but they don't know the actual situation on the ground. They're not on the phone with the company every day. And, and not having leverage gives you like sort of the ability to sort of do what you need to do to make the right decision rather than doing what you need to do within the confines of rules that were set pre-COVID or pre-circumstance you could have never uh, expected before. There's another situation where you might have multiple lenders and those lenders are all acting differently. And under, trying to figure out how to navigate what makes sense for one lender versus another. You know, one of the things that's often in terms where if you have multiple lenders is all lenders need to be treated parapasu or get most favored nation. Well, you don't want to be as a lender to a company where the other lenders are getting treated more fairly. That might be a situation where you have one lender who's being a total jerk, your other two lenders or four lenders or even five, 10, whatever are being great. And you have to figure out how to navigate all those relationships so that one lender doesn't blow up everything else. But then on the other hand, you might be totally thrilled that you've diversified your capital base, which is something that you often hear. Um, and so, it, and the last part is understanding, like if you're private equity owned, you know, Blackstone is sort of a big deal. If they go tell their lender, hey, I believe that if you give me a little bit of flexibility here, I'm going to work this out. One, they're a really important client to the lender and the lender doesn't want to screw that up. Two, they have a lot of credibility because they've been through this before. If you're like a rinky-dink private equity firm that you know doesn't have that same sort of relationship with large banks, you can't have those same conversations. So I, it's really, really hard to say this is how a lender-borrower relationship works because there's so many other factors involved. What, what can people do right now to ruin their relationship, right, or, or reputation? So like we hear all the time, hey, you could build your reputation over years and mm -hmm. years and years. Um, and you can be the greatest person in the world in the bull markets. When the bear market hits, it's really easy to kind of blow up that reputation that you've built by just doing kind of shitty things. Mm -hmm. From your perspective, like what are the things that are most likely uh, for somebody to do that then leads to kind of the, the hurt on the reputation side? Is it just not yeah. following through with what they're supposed to do or, or something more complex? So, you know, I'll back so usually when something goes wrong, it's the borrower's fault, right? They didn't do something they were supposed to do. In this case, like a virus occurred, everyone got sick, so everyone had to stay home. And so people stopped spending money and like, it's sort of not your fault anymore. And one reaction might be to go to all your lenders and say, everything's fine. Everything's not fine. Like I've left my apartment four times this week. Like, fuck you if you think everything's fine. And you know, one way to ruin your reputation or uh, confidence from your lender is to be ignorant or you know, one temptation that a lot of founders and entrepreneurs have is to show confidence because if you don't show confidence in the market, people assume things are worse than they are. I don't think this is the time to do that. I think this is the time to say, here's our plan and here's our base case. Here's how we think things are going to affect us. Um, in a good scenario, it doesn't affect us or affects us less than we thought. In a base case, it affects us and here's what would happen. In a bear case, this is how bad it can get. 
I've found in the conversations I'm having with our portfolio, the more worried the founder is, the less worried I am. The less worried the founder is, the more worried I am because it makes me think that someone has to worry and it's not them. The second thing is hiding information. You know, one temptation is to say, oh my God, you know, I'm lending money to, because often we're working with companies that are lending money to other companies. And they may have a, a loan that's not performing. One thing they may want to do is refinance that loan and say, well, you know, this is a borrower that we've worked with for a long time. Um, you know, they're struggling and they already were struggling. And this is a moment that makes it even harder. Let's, let's, bar let's lend to them again. Let's put a little bit more money out because it'll help them get through this time. You know, in rare cases, that's the right thing to do. But I would say, look, like you normally, if you're going to get yelled at for making a bad loan, this is the time that you're not going to get yelled at. Just like cut it off. And even if, if it was COVID related, people understand if it wasn't COVID related, people are going to still think it was COVID related and give you the benefit of the doubt. So it's a really good moment to um, kind of cut things out from the book uh, or make if you saw something trending in a bad way, make this the quarter that you write it off. But the way that you can really screw this up is lying, pretending like you're more optimistic than you are, committing fraud or doing things that are gonna put your lender or your investor in a bad position with their investors, because those are things that are sort of unforgivable. Yeah, so it sounds like really a lot of the, uh, maybe the don't do's are just do what you say you're gonna do, don't be an idiot and tell the truth, right? Like, like those are like the big things. And if you do that, everyone kind of understands, hey, look, this is a really bad situation and we're all in this in various ways. Um, and get ahead of it, right? I mean. It's pretty, think about this. It's a lot easier to have a conversation and say, there's a, there's a chance that X, Y, and Z thing is about to happen. We're working really hard for it not to happen. If you were us, how would you be handling it? And then you bring your investors into the problem and it becomes their problem too. And then they're brainstorming with you. If it goes wrong later, whether it's right or wrong, they'll have thought that they were part of the solution. And now it's everyone's fault, not the investee's fault. If you hide it and you want to just tell people it's going to be fine and you hope it is, and then later you're like, hey, this thing I didn't mention, um, it went wrong. You have, you have one of two options. Either I didn't tell you about it, even though I knew it might be an issue, or two, I didn't think it was an issue and I'm an idiot and now it's an issue, right? Yeah. So it's just a lose-lose. And so get it. Your, your investors are seeing so much stuff right now that like they're a lot more tolerant of, of information. Yeah, I know for us with our LPs, you know, and, and we, we are excited and think this is a really good time to be investing actually, but we said, Hey, this is everything that could go wrong. And in the event that it goes wrong in the next few months, now, you know, you end up having this sort of tricky issue where a lot of your LPs are going to want to talk, which is fine. You want to be over communicative. The hard part about that is they may have an idea, um, and you may disagree with that idea and not do it anyway. That's sort of hard. But a majority of them, um, and, and that's not because one person's wrong or one person's right, you know, it's just, if we all knew what to do, we would all do it. A majority of them, we're gonna have the conversation say, wow, you're thinking about this the right way, and no matter what happens, you've kind of been communicating. So I think, you know, just a lot of communication and a lot of realism and start crappy and then like get better from there. Um, yeah. When an investor calls me, I'm telling them all the things that could go wrong, not all the things that are going right. 
Makes sense. Um, you mentioned the covenants and like the idea that uh, there's conversations that happen, especially in the private markets right now in credit, where folks basically say, hey, look, if you kind of call all of these covenants or enforce them, uh, I'm going to default and cause problems mm -hmm. uh, for myself and for you, et cetera. Where's the balance there? And, and what I mean by that is like, why have the covenants if when things go wrong, people then don't follow them or they're kind of yeah. like enforced, uh, you know, on an ad hoc basis, almost to some degree? I mean, there's a like all of my answers right now, there's a spectrum. So in some cases, um, you, so if I write a good loan document, a covenant will be broken in the best and the worst of times, because if a covenant was never broken, it was probably too loose of a document. And what inevitably happens in normal times, the portfolio company will, you know, will be operating and something crappy will happen or something they never even expected will happen. And you say, hey, you breached the covenant, but I'm okay. either I'm okay with it because it's not that material or I get what happened and I, I want to keep being a good lender. Two, it's material and I'm not going to foreclose on you. But what I do want is to increase the interest rate, right? So there might be a payment penalty. There might be, hey, you know, your assets are underperforming. So I need you to raise more equity to cure my, bar, you know, my protection. Um, you might say something like, hey, I'm going to like do something to be lenient on you now, but in exchange, I want warrants in your business because the reason I'm helping you is really to help the equity of the business, not really to help the debt. And then the, the other is a, a lender who did it because the whole time they were hoping you'd break a covenant so they could take your business from you. You know, one of the, and so that's, that's always the case. And, and in this, it's no different, right? So the reason the covenants are in place are one, to bring people to the table. The most important covenants when we're right, when we're investing in a deal is the leading indicator covenants. So we'll often look at cohort analysis and try to do things where if something's going wrong now, it means that something really will go wrong in six months. And so what we want to do is have those covenants so that when it happens, our reaction is not we're defaulting. It's that um, you are in default, but here's a path towards a cure. That way we don't get into this sort of emergency situation later. Um, you know, and then, and then in other cases, one of the perverse incentives is actually the better the asset, the more comfortable you're foreclosing. So, you know, in an ideal world, what you might say is if, if you're sort of the rational investor, you might look at a, a, all these investment opportunities. One investment opportunity is you are going to buy into the equity of a good asset. You know, let's imagine it's a really nice hotel and you say, well, it doesn't have a lot of leverage on it, right? It's a hundred million dollar hotel. The debt is only 50 million of the hundred million. So it's not a lot of leverage. We know that when this is all going to come back, it's probably going to stay in business. And the equity is down because the market said it's down, but I want to go buy in. In a weird way, it's actually, that's a riskier asset in some cases because the lender may be more comfortable foreclosing on it because they're pretty sure they're going to get all their money back or most of their money back. In another scenario, you might be looking at a deal where it's not a great hotel and it's really levered, you know, maybe 90% leverage and the equity's down a lot. That lender is actually more unlikely to foreclose if they don't have to, because if they have 90 of the $100 out and the true value because of COVID went down, let's call it 6%, 8%. If they foreclose the transfer of the asset, the foreclosure, the litigation, um, the damaged goods are going to be less valuable than the 90 bucks back. And they may be afraid of not getting par. And so they're more likely to work with you because it's no longer the equities problem. It's the equity and the debts problem. 
So there's all these sort of interpersonal dynamics that might make it a little bit less obvious than you think. Yeah. Do you think that there will be changes uh, in covenants moving forward after this? Like, will we see uh, pandemic related uh, covenants? Or do you feel like most of the covenants that are in there today uh, tend to kind of cover a lot of the issues that are going to come up during this? No, I mean, this will, this will get written in legal docs forever now. You know, the question is, how do you define pandemic? I don't know what, if the, if the president of the United States declares it a pandemic, it seems like a pretty crappy way to define it. And, you know, vague language is what litigation is made of. So there'll be, there'll be some um, version of it. Um, I can imagine there's going to be certain industries where getting pandemic insurance will be an obligation. You know, for the airline industry, for example, I can imagine on a go forward, there's going to like, you know, how banks have FDIC insurance, which basically says, well, if you're an FDIC insured bank, you can take deposits. I bet you there's going to be some sort of like thing similar to that to the airlines where they say, hey, you know, you have to take a percentage of your profits and like it's going to be taxed into this, um, you know, government trust. And then in the event of a pandemic, um, you know, uh, cash will be doled out. Inevitably, it won't be enough cash, but at least people won't have the same reaction of like, oh, my God, American Airlines did all these like dividends and share buybacks or whatever they did. And how crappy of them to now need government support if the shareholders did okay. I bet you're going to see stuff like that. I bet you there's going to be pandemic insurance that's brokered to the government. Um, and then I think one of the interesting things that's happening in insurance right now that people have started to see a lot of press on is like, if you're an auto insurer, life's pretty good. Most of your assets were, you know, cause, cause an insurance company, they make money because you pay them premiums and then they have a bunch of cash and they invest that cash. And insurance companies are regulated. They're not allowed to do risky things with their cash because, you know, if your house burns down, you want to make sure the, com the, the insurance company has the cash to pay you out. Um, so their assets are primarily in pretty not risky stuff. At the same time, like there's not a lot of car crashes. So auto insurance is doing great. The government, I can imagine telling these insurance companies that in times of duress or in times of pandemic, we're going to increase your tax rate to go into this sort of pandemic insurance pool. And then the government will subsidize that pool. And, you know, hospitality companies and travel companies will also be required to take out that insurance, just like there's key man risk. Yeah, super interesting. Um, there's a lot of people uh, who have said that they are uh, getting more bullish on going and buying assets now. So whether, uh, you know, Chamath came on the podcast and talked about going to look for some good assets. Uh, Howard Marks recently wrote um, a memo talking about that they're, they're buying things where they find value and, and kind of have switched to a, a more aggressive um, stance. What are the types of assets that you think people should be looking for? Um, and I know that there's uh, some debate as to like, do you go look for the good assets or the bad assets and kind of how you think about that? Yeah. Um, I mean, look, I, so I don't, I think a lot of public securities are being traded on speculation, liquidity mismatches, uncertainty around what interest payments will be have to pay it or not. And not really on like going in, like driving up to a building and being like, I don't know, would anyone go in this building? Maybe it's on a nice road and the other buildings around it seem pretty nice. There's no graffiti. So, you know, I think nor in normal times you look at an asset, you decide how valuable the asset is and you lend against it. And now there's a lot of market dynamics. I'm not really got to sort of speculate. I, I don't know enough about market dynamics to feel like I'm the person to go do that. In my little world of private credit, I don't, think that there's a lot to do yet. For one, covenants are still breaking. And April and May will be a lot worse than March. And June will probably be bad. And 
you know, I, it's super cool that like, you know, the government's trying to tell us that everything's okay, but it's not, you know, no one's going outside and the world's collapsing. And this is, this is really fucking bad. Um, pe you know, people aren't going to have jobs. So I'll tell you one thing, right? So like, you're not going outside, so you're not spending money. And then we're all going to get a stimulus check. Consumer credit isn't going to be that bad in March because also people got laid off at the end of March. Consumer credit won't even be that bad at the end of April. May is going to be fucked. May is going to be so bad. And so a lot of people are, are going to look at this and think that they're were weighing in or that the market's been corrected and it hasn't, you know, and then the other thing is a lot of entrepreneurs haven't really reacted to the new reality. I think there's still some sort of optimism and um, it's good to have optimism, but you know, there, I don't think like the bid ask has really kind of come to reality yet. Um, so I'm sure maybe I'm sure in public markets there's stuff to do because there's distress and like, I'm sure Apollo REITs and Blackstone REITs are probably good to buy because, you know, if Goldman's letting you know a Blackstone REIT, I'm sure Blackstone's not going to work with Goldman anymore if Goldman acts like a jerk, you know. By the way, I wouldn't want to buy, like, the REIT of, like, a rinky-dinky sponsor where, like, Goldman doesn't care about them. So, but, but in my world of private credit, not a lot to do yet. I mean, I think what's happening is lenders are going to their borrowers and saying, hey, this seems pretty bad, huh? And the borrower's like, yeah, this is pretty bad. What can you, you know, what can you do? And the, le and the borrowers who have been performing really well in good times are going to have a lot of leverage with their lenders. The borrowers who weren't performing even before this are going to have less leverage. And then they're working on a plan. You know, in, what, in some cases, one of the things that's interesting is, you know, right now the world got riskier, so you'd expect spreads to go up. If you have a borrower who is already struggling, the worst thing you can do to them is make them pay more interest payments. So you have this super weird dynamic where sure, you know, the risk is going up. So you should be asking for a higher yield, but the company can't pay for it because people aren't buying their thing. Um, you know, by the way, if you're an inventory lender and you've been lending to an e-commerce company or a physical retailer against a bunch of their, I don't know, surfboards, it's probably not great to collect those assets right now. I don't know if surfboard sales are going to do, you know, and so there's a lot of stuff that people are trying to figure out where it's just not distressed yet. And um, I'd rather be too late than too early. Yeah. Um, let's switch to uh, the venture side because you guys have made a bunch of uh, venture investments as well. Um, how are you seeing uh, the good CEOs or good companies handle uh, this situation? I know you and I have kind of talked about like this pandemic playbook where basically uh, kind of being decisive and, and, and jumping into action early is probably better than waiting. What, what do you see those companies doing right now that, um, that mm -hmm. you can kind of walk away and say they're, they're doing the right thing? So... I mean, so venture kind of went in this, this cycle of waves, right? So there's one, which is the pandemic occurred and venture capitalists sort of view themselves as contrarian thinkers, even though they're not. And they were like, oh man, markets are down. It's a great time to buy. We're open for business. And any other venture capitalist who's scared right now, what an amateur. I've been through cycles. This is going to be great. And I'm going to be here with you. And then, uh, and that was bullshit, right? Because what happened is all of a sudden, all these, mostly bullshit, right? Because all of a sudden, all these VCs had a handful of companies in their portfolio who, if you have a big enough portfolio, someone was hit really hard. You know, in some companies, you're going to see a dip in sales of 20, 30%. Some companies are going to have a hard time sort of doing, you know, making new sales and won't hit their growth targets. Some companies lost 90% of the revenue. And okay, so for two to three weeks, that's what you're focused on. And it's not that you don't believe yourself when you say it's good to buy at the bottom of a market. It's just hard to spend your time giving capital to a new company when a company you're on the board of is in crisis mode. 
So then what you do, the, the next week, you know, people kept tweeting or whatever the hell they do. And then um, people were saying, okay, well, let's look at our fund. How much dry powder do we have left? What percent of our portfolio companies have a lot of cash? What percent of them don't have a lot of cash? Who are our most important fund drivers and how do we make sure they're okay? And then let's figure out how much cash is available for everyone else. You know, one of the things that happens in venture capital is usually VCs focus on one stage. They might be a seed stage firm, a series A firm, a series B firm, whatever. But um, when you do a round and you expect some other firm to come in and do the next round, it's usually on the back of hitting your plan or hitting close to your plan or growing. In a world where people are going to struggle to grow, like if you're an enterprise software company and you're making sales, it's probably not going to be a lot of sales to be made, right? A CFO is going to be sitting there being like, I can lay off more of my friends or I can buy this cool thing. And if it's not a cost-saving thing, you're not going to get it. So um, there's not going to be a lot of growth, which means a lot of these VC funds had to take their fund and carve out a larger portion than normal for follow-on and insider rounds to lead insider rounds into their portfolio companies. That just means new names um, will be printed less, right? There's just less room for new deals. And so I think most VC firms have done that now. Then there's the stage of going to every single one of your portfolio companies and going through like the sort of um, generalized plan. Okay, who, let, let's go through every single one of your payables and figure out what you don't need to pay or what you can reduce. AWS bills, probably reduce those. Salesforce bills, probably reduce those. G Suite bills, probably reduce those. Landlord, rent payments, probably reduce those. So you literally go into your state, your credit card, corporate credit card, you go into your bank account, you look at every outgoing wire, every outgoing amount, and say, what do I not need to pay? And what do I need to pay later? And then you force rank your employees, which is sort of the hard part. And you decide, you know, one, if you had underperformers and companies are notorious for not being good at laying people off or firing people who aren't performing, often because they're founded by new entrepreneurs, you don't like having those conversations. You now have the best excuse ever, um, you know, to do that, as sad as that sounds. And then you say, okay, so if, I, if I'm not going to be able to raise money for 12 to 24 months, um, how much capital do I need? And you often need to extend your runway, and that might mean even more layoffs. And then you say, let me go through my customer list. What percent of my customers are, like, in travel? I should assume that none of them are going to pay me. Um, you know, what percent of my customers are streaming services? How do I lean into those customers? Um, but I would be, you know, if I was an executive on the phone with all my key customers trying to figure out how I can proactively work with them. Um, so those are, you know, the, the basics. And then after that, every company is sort of its own um, snowflake. Yeah, it, it's really interesting because I think there's uh, the two components, right? You can grow revenue and you can cut cost. But what we actually will see here is some companies will suffer pretty drastically and some companies will actually get aggressive and steal market share. Right. And, and um, there's simple things like, uh, you know, travel and hospitality obviously are going to suffer for the most part. Uh, but then the streaming companies will, uh, will, will do well. What I wonder is, um, you know, and, and I've thought through a lot, like you don't see every restaurant struggle, for example. Right. So uh, things like Panera is selling groceries, out of their um, locations because it's a way to continue to drive revenue while they have their locations open and no one's coming in to actually dine in. Or you'll see like a local small business who says, hey, you know what, we can't actually have people come in, but we can really ramp up our uh, delivery business, right? And kind of go ghost kitchens, et cetera. Um, are you seeing kind of that ingenuity um, you know, from entrepreneurs or are people still in the mode of like, let me get a lay of the land and understand what's happening before I make any rash decisions? I think, you know, it's, 
it sounds cool to say, wow, this is like my moment to play offense while everyone else is playing defense. And I think that's right. I think it's a little, um, look, if you're an entrepreneur and you think you're smarter than a virus, you're pretty fucking cocky. So I think having some humility going into this is important and you can have a hypothesis that this is better for your business. Um, you know, we have a portfolio company that, um, is in the sports space. And one of their hypotheses is that because live sports are down, they're actually going to see an increase in revenues and an increase in demand. But it's still a hypothesis, and we're not taking action on, to, on it until we see the data to prove that we're right. Because there's so many things that I couldn't have predicted. Like, you know, okay, I didn't know how, I didn't know that footwear would be hit harder than apparel generally. You know, that seems like a, or, or I didn't realize how much luxury was going to get hit. You know, I was talking to another lender, and they were saying that their, you know, their borrowers, are struggling because they can't lower their prices. Um, and because if they lower their prices, it takes away the brand quality, right? And then that, you know, people kind of know that, but you, you, it gets hit harder than you expect. You know, you know, things like beauty and staples are doing well. Um, I didn't expect podcast streaming to be as down as it is compared to music streaming. Um, you know, and then you start thinking about things like, okay, well, 90% of Spotify's revenue is subscriptions, not ad spend. Like, there's all these things that like, you just didn't think about before all this occurred. I think in a month and a half, two months from now, you'll start to see data. As data starts to prove out your theses and hypotheses, yeah, lean into it. But until then, um, have the hypothesis and know what the data you would need to see is to go take action on it. But trying to convince yourself you're the smartest person in the room right now, especially if it's your first time going through a crisis. I don't know. doesn't, doesn't seem like the, be prepared, but don't yeah. go too early. Well, and, and another piece of this, I think is there's a big difference between what I'll call like the traditional main street, small business and um, a technology enabled kind of venture backed business. And, and if you really think about the technology enabled venture backed business, they almost have this expectation early on. The reason why they raise money is because they're going to operate at a loss for some period of time. Things like how much runway do I have? What's my burn? Like that's kind of built into the model. And the belief is over time, you'll become uh, profitable and grow and, and you know get more customers, et cetera. The small businesses don't operate like that, right? Most small businesses are uh, kind of have very thin margins. They're profitable or break even in that sense. And they don't have big cash um, you know, in the, in the bank account. And so it almost feels like venture backed businesses, uh, just in the mindset of how they grow, that they operate at losses for a while, et cetera, uh, and then have raised money to have these runways are in a little bit better position than the small businesses that might only have two to three weeks of cash. And if revenue goes to zero, they just can't, they just can't do it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's always been the case. You know, I think we're noticing that, you know, it might change how people choose what companies to join. Right. You know, it, people might realize, oh, my gosh, a small business doesn't really have a lot of cash. And do I really want that to be my employer? Um, I, but I think the reaction is probably going to be the government's going to say, well, we sort of rely on small businesses to exist. Um, that was really bad. We probably don't want that to happen again. And so let's come up with some sort of like program where we're able to move faster. You know, the, the whole idea that the SBA was going to move fast and like be able to distribute cash quickly did feel like if you believed it, you should probably change your career. You know, um, like the SBA is like the DMV of finance and we're sort of seeing that happen now. And on top of that, you know, if you're a bank, you're, you just lose, lose, lose. Either you originate small business loans quickly 
but it's really hard to do your KYC AML, so you get fined. You do it slowly, and you get yelled at for doing it slowly. You decide not to, because, or, and, and you get yelled at for not doing it or not having an SBA license, or you do it quickly and you charge enough in origination and servicing fees where you can kind of withstand future fines so that you can lend quickly and people get mad at you for having made a lot of money on it. There's just no win here, right? And so like, you gotta actually create aligned incentives for the originators of these loans to actually get them to go do it. But right now, if you're a bank, you have so much PTSD from the reputation you create yourself in 08 that you're like, is it really worth it? Do I need to be doing this? And then if you're a bank, you're definitely not gonna make a new loan to somebody who has, isn't already your client because you know, the KYC and AML of that is so hard. Like, why would you take the risk? And there's so much fraud that occurs during a crisis um, that it's just not worth potentially getting taken advantage of. I also think it'll change how SMBs bank. Like I think, is my bank SBA license is gonna matter soon. Yeah, is the fraud thing, um, like, like explain that a little bit more. When you talk about there's a lot of fraud and, and kind of uh, just nefarious activity in a crisis. If you were a terrorist organization and you knew that banks were going to be making loans at a faster rate than normal and you were trying to figure out how to get cash, this might be a good time to try to get cash from a bank. Yeah, like that's the thinking of it, mm -hmm. right? And, and during any fraud, one, people get desperate, right? So they need money. And fraud, you know, fraud occurs, there's two types of fraud. There's fraud where it's a good person who got desperate and does a bad thing. And there's fraud where it's a bad person who intentionally did a bad thing, even though they didn't need to do a bad thing. The first type starts to happen more in times like this. Um, look, if you got laid off and you don't have another job and you're kind of like worried because your kids are at home, I don't know, what do you what do you care more about? Like fraud or your kid's safety, um, your kid's food? So yeah, there's gonna be more phishing attacks. There's gonna be more hackers. There's gonna be more fake news. There's gonna be more people you know, trying to um, commit fraud in the system. If you knew, that there was gonna be $350 billion of SBA loans being doled out right now, and you were a bad actor, it seems like a pot of money that you might try to go after. Yeah, and it's probably gonna end up being more than that. I saw that they're already talking about another $250 billion possibly to, uh, to try to backstop some of the small business stuff. Yeah, let's get the $350 billion out first, you know? Like, <laughs> the, what's crazy to me, I think, is uh, how bad the information is. Like after the, even the first day, there was like conflicting reports of how many people had applied, how much um, you know those loan applications were worth, et cetera. And I don't think the government really wants us to know. You know, like I, I think that they're kind of like, you know, there's there, good data is best, hope is second best, and bad data is worse. Mm -hmm. We're in hope. Yeah, it's it's a it's a good way to look at it. Um, you, two of the trends that I know that you spent a lot of time on, mainly because you guys have portfolio companies, is uh, one e-commerce, and then two kind of ad spend or or the advertising industry. Let's start with e-commerce. What are you guys seeing there on the e-commerce side that you think um, is either interesting or, or people should uh, should be paying attention to? I mean, look, I think this is a it's been a great time for e-commerce generally to show the world that it really matters. Like, the variable costs of an e-commerce business are really important. You know, if you think about how an e-commerce business is built, um, you know, it's cogs, it's your sort of software services, your website, stuff like that. And it's marketing spend. And you have employees. If you're a big e-commerce company, you might have a warehouse and inventory. By the way, you have your inventory lender who, you know, God knows they don't want your inventory because if you can't sell it, they can't sell it. Um, and then, 
you might have more employees than normal. But by the way, if you have a warehouse, you probably have more cash than the average small business, um, maybe. But you can toggle that up and down. If you have a physical retail location, you have your rent. You have a lot of fixed costs that you can't toggle up and down. And on top of that, people can still shop online. So e-commerce, our hypothesis right now is it's going to be hit a lot less badly than most. It's really hard to predict where consumer demand is going to go down. As more and more people are laid off, it's going to be bad. However, like, you know, I know I, I probably spent a third of what I normally spend last month because I'm just not going out and not doing stuff. So I have, you know, the average individual is probably generating more excess cash if they are employed. They may go online and shop. That's what I mean by, you know, in one hand, you could be an e-commerce company and say, oh, my God, now's a great time to play offense because I know where the world's going. All my competition's going down. But there's so many competing variables that like, okay, so people are spending less. Maybe they have more time to shop online. Um, people are getting laid off. Maybe demand's going to go down. You know, it's just too hard. Like, it's too hard to know. Um, so, you know, I can't give too much confidential information on e-commerce other than those sort of general data points. On advertising, um, you know, we're seeing a handful of sort of factors. One is views are way up. Um, people are at home, they're on screens, and they're watching more. And CPMs are way down. Part of the reason CPMs are down is because if you were spending a million dollars a month and that was your budget, and now views have doubled, your CPMs will just come down in half. But, you know, you're seeing slight decreases in ad spend right now in the last two weeks of March. You're seeing way more views than normal. And different parts of the ad market are going to get hit differently. You know, print, radio, TV, things that are hard to measure and are expensive are going to get really hit. Social, video, just, you know, banner ads, less hit because they're easier to measure and the CPMs are cheaper. And so you can get a better bang for your buck. Um, you know, and then by the way, if you really are something like if you're Peloton or you're Hulu or you're someone like that, you're going to get a better ROI in your ad spend now than ever. And so you might start leaning in because there's less noise. Um, so we're basically seeing ads, CPMs coming way down, views going way up and ad spend generally being down five to 20%, depending on the medium. And I can imagine ad spend going down 20 to 50%, but that some platforms are going to perform way better than others. And I would be pretty bearish on media companies that sell premium high CPMs and more bullish on media companies that have exchanges and sell generally lower CPMs. Snap sells at a lower CPM than Instagram. That's a bullish comment. YouTube sells at a lower CPM than Instagram. That's a bullish comment, uh, you know, thing. The other thing is, um, you know, Spotify. People aren't turning off their Spotify subscriptions. And then the last thing that sort of is an interesting observation is companies are, people have traditionally looked at LTVs and, e and enterprise sales revenue as stickier than consumer generated revenue. Like a Netflix subscription feels less sticky than enterprise software. For enterprise software, I bet you see a bigger dip than you see in consumer apps because people are still at home watching Netflix and they don't have a CFO of their personal life negotiating with all their different vendors. And Netflix doesn't care about any one subscriber. But if you're 2% of the revenue of a company, or if you're even 20 basis points of revenue of a company, that's huge. And so I bet you end up seeing more negotiation and decrease in prices of enterprise software than you see of consumer.
Yeah, that, that, that makes sense when you put it that way. Um, does this change, you think, people's view of kind of ad-supported businesses versus subscription businesses? Like um, kind of what exactly what you're talking about, almost changing the way that people think about how they build their business in the future? I think that, uh, you know, enterprise software will probably be thought of as cyclical um, going forward. I think um, one of the things that people, you know, we talk a lot about internally is what does a consumer cap stack look like? And historically, you know, you've always said, okay, well, you know, your home loan and your auto loan are probably the most senior. And then it's like, you know, utility bills, and then it's like credit card, and then it's like unsecured stuff. And then it's like your Nordstrom's card. And you look at default rates per consumer, and you kind of like go up and down that stack, just like a corporate, you know, uh, cap stack exists. You have your senior lender, your secured lenders, your unsecured lenders, whatever. And then what we've always thought is Spotify subscription, like, whatever your cheapest per utility subscriptions are probably more senior in your consumer cap stack than most people think. So I would probably want to finance someone's Spotify subscription before I'd want to be their credit card provider, because I bet you, you don't pay your credit card bill, but you still maybe find a way to pay your Spotify bill. The flip side of that argument is you pay your Spotify bill with your credit card. I don't know, maybe, but man, does it feel good to be providing a $9.99 per month service that is probably being used a ton if you're out of work or your smartphone or Netflix compared to like a credit card. Um, so it's just, it'll be interesting. To, I think we're going to have a bunch of new data around what default rates and what churn looks like after this that we never had before. Yeah. The, the thing I think around the ad supported businesses too is uh, that advertiser who had the million bucks and, you know, uh, views have gone up two times. So now all of a sudden they're paying 50% less CPMs. At some point, if we stay in this quarantine, I wonder if there's an impact on sales that changes their uh, CAC and LTV calculations, right? So literally just because you have the million dollars to advertise, if no one's buying your product, at some point, do you literally just say, hey, we're not going to advertise, right? So well, it, it almost like dries up because sales dry up. Yeah. I mean, I think people are definitely going to be start running bearable and base case LTVs. You know, one of the things that people always say, like LTV has become this sort of like it, it, initially... CAC to LTV was everyone's like, holy grail metrics. And I think in the last couple of years, people have become a lot less enchanted by LTVs because what you do is you take your monthly revenue and you take six months of total churn data and assume that's what's going to last forever. And you come up with some number that looks very close to infinity um, in terms of like what your LTV is. And I think people are going to start to say like, what is your LTV in different environments? So I do think that it's actually going to become a more useful metric again, because people are going to know how to measure it instead of just looking at it. It's like, oh, don't worry. My churn in my first four months is zero. So it means that my LTV is like, 93 quadrillion, you know? Um, so I, I also think that we're going to, I think the, the last crisis saw a shift towards digital ads. And I think that you're going to see another shift there away from print TV and traditional sources. Um, I don't think people are going to be really doing a lot of billboard ads right now. It doesn't seem like a very good idea. Um, you know, so I think you're going to see somewhat permanent shifts. But I also think that you're going to see you know, companies like the New York Times and others who re have relied on premium CPMs, they've already started going more and more towards subscription revenue, um, again, and paid revenue. And I think as things like COVID show us how much bad information there is out there, people are going to keep paying up. And I, I know that I've picked up probably two to four subscriptions while I've been home because I'm just reading more and watching more. I don't think I'm going to churn off of them. I think that's going to be a big deal. That's probably going to yeah. be a forever shift. Yeah. And I wonder also like uh, on the subscription side, there's some things, you know, we, we don't watch a Netflix show every single night, 
right? But it's something that is cheap enough where I couldn't even actually tell you how much it is. Is it nine bucks, 10 bucks, 12 bucks, whatever it is. When you say not watching every night, you're not looping me into that, right? Because I am on Netflix <laughs> every night right now. <laughs> yeah, um, but, but it's like, let's say that you've got, I don't know, most yeah. people probably have somewhere between four to 10 subscriptions, right? That, that they're paying for across various services. And some of those, uh, like a Spotify, you probably actually do use every day, right? If you go to the gym, you listen to podcasts, whatever. Uh, but then other things you may use once or twice a week. And some of you actually may only use once or twice a month. Month. Um, and what I think starts to happen is um, the businesses themselves will actually change the way uh, that they think about the product or service, right? The more that you can kind of uh, become a daily habit, I think also changes. Um, and, and so it almost then brings you to something like a Quibi versus a Netflix, right? Where these, the Quibi thing is basically 10 minute short form content. You're supposed to be able to consume it, you know, much quicker daily, yeah. et cetera, versus let's sit down and watch an hour and a half documentary. Um, I don't know if it'll prove out, but, but I think that that has to enter the conversation at some point uh, for people who are looking at the subscription-based businesses as well. Yeah, the Quibi thing will be interesting. I mean, I think a lot of like, I, I'm not, I don't know Jack about storytelling, except that I always remember, and, and I actually, this guy I'm on a board with uh, kind of put the construct for, built the construct for me. He's like, you know, if you look at a John Grisham book, John Grisham does this awesome thing where he creates like, you know, very short chapters and he always has three subplots running. And so at the end of every chapter, you have a subplot that gets extinguished and you're really interested to know it's going to, or, or sorry, on a clip, like on a cliffhanger and you get to the next chapter and you're sort of wondering. So you read that chapter to keep getting to the next chapter we're going to find out. And then there's another cliffhanger and then you read the third chapter, another cliffhanger and you finally get the answer to the first cliffhanger and then he creates another, right? And so if Quibi can kind of create that dynamic with their audience where there's always a cliffhanger where you come back the next day, I think that'd be interesting. I don't know if that'll be true or not. Um, who, who knows? Um, but I do agree that this daily habit thing is important. And I do agree that um, cost per utility of use is going to be a really, really important metric. You know, mm -hmm. what's the value? Like, I wonder if there's going to be a, a KPI that starts coming out which is how much do people spend for every minute they're on Netflix. And I bet you, if you looked at like the 999 you pay for Netflix and you look at, and then you divide that by how many minutes per month, that'd be super fascinating to know that metric compared to Hulu compared to Disney plus. Yeah. Um, the other thing, by the way, that Quibi reminds me of is it's a short duration asset. So in lending, like let's imagine you lend, you make five year loans. You know, in one case, that's not so good because you have to take a five-year view on the economy, a five-year view on the company. And so people say, well, if you make a 30-day loan, it's really easy to predict what's going to happen in 30 days. The problem is some, every once in a while, it's not, right? Like, I don't know, maybe there's going to be some virus that starts in a country and spreads to all the other countries and everyone stays home for a while, right? And you didn't know that was going to happen. All of a sudden, your book of 30-day assets all gets correlated to one and goes to zero because we all stopped paying payables this month. Um, and then on the five-year loan, you know, you basically look at your default rate and you say, well, my annualized default rate for two to three months is super bad. But then over the duration of the whole asset base, you know, I had out of five years, six really bad months, the thing performed okay in general. But the short duration of the asset, you know, the more your whole thing can get wiped out. Um, and if you look at the effective default rates, often people say, oh, well, factoring, for example, is like 15, 45, 90-day receivables. And you'll see default rates in like the two to 4% range sometimes. You have to annualize that out. So if you see 2% defaults every month, it's really the 24% default rate. Quibi, I think will in some ways be like 
in a similar thing where I am curious how many false positives you're going to get where people download Quibi, but they can't get hooked on these short stories and they just fall off. Um, but I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a storyteller. I don't have good taste. I've never liked something before everyone else liked it. And then like all of a sudden it became popular. So I'm not the right guy to ask. What, what um, have you noticed any changes in uh, the things that you're consuming on your phone? So obviously we're all spending more time in front of computers, TVs, phones, et cetera, just by nature of sitting home. But have you started to consume content from other platforms that maybe you weren't before or, or you notice, hey, you know, I'm spending a lot more time on uh, Instagram, whereas previously it was Twitter or something like that? I'm finally, I, I am finally reading uh, my newsletters that I get because I've had a bit more time to do that. Um, but I find myself spending a lot less time reading the Wall Street Journal and hearing what somebody's interpretation of what an expert said, and instead just looking for data. Like, I don't, I don't need, and by the way, I think reporters are doing a good job. This is not like a, a dig on anything. Like, but I'm, I'm less interested in seeing like a two-page article analyzing something that an industry expert observed from talking to someone else. Instead, I'm like, all right, just send me the export. I want to see the CSV. Yeah, super interesting. Uh, before we finish up, uh, two minutes on uh, Bitcoin and crypto. You've uh, you've previously described yourself as crypto curious. What uh, what, what are you thinking there? Um, or any kind of thoughts? I was super bummed to see Bitcoin get crushed when the market started to uh, go into sort of panic mode because it was supposed to be a safe haven, and you know everything's correlated. You know everything's correlated was truly true that week. Um, it started to rebound. I don't have any observations other than let's see where we land two months from now and how it ends up behaving relative to other markets. But I'm really in wait and see move, uh, mode. I, but I think it's hard for something to be a store value when it dropped that far that fast. I mean, there was a night, and I think maybe we both remember that night where like I was on my phone texting everyone, all my loved ones being like, I don't know, maybe it's all gone, you know, like, um, and I, that's scary. It's not a position I want to be in. The, uh, the black Thursday, I, I told you this and, and I'll say it on here. Uh, I never thought the day would come where Polina had to look at me and be like, it's going to be okay. But seeing it drop 50% in a single day, it was just like, it almost took your breath away to actually watch it happen. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the whole like Bitcoin thing is like, ah, oh, don't trust the government. The government's shitty. Like the government's trying to take all your information. Like the government, if you act out, might just throw you in jail. And there's like a lot of negatives about having a government, you know? But, you know, they do like, there's like an army, you know, that's pretty good. And, you know, people are giving shit to the postal service. Like, yeah, there probably should be those some like government entity that like make sure letters, you know, if FedEx goes bankrupt, will still get to where it needs to go, even if it takes freaking ever, you know, like, so I do think that there's utility to a government and um, I don't know, like I, I didn't go into this thing knowing anything really about Steve Mnuchin. I probably think more positively of him though now than my sort of neutral view I had on him a few months ago. And I think he has the benefit of seeing Hank Paulson drag, drag, drag Congress, Senate and, you know, pundits the mud to save our economy last time. At least we had the playbook. And then government showed that like, it's really important and it's important because they can do great things like stimulate the economy and they can do shitty things like have some president who doesn't can't speak in full sentences confuse the nation right and like i think if you're going to sit there 
and say that the government is doing things wrong and be annoyed at the government, by definition, you're saying how important the government is. And Bitcoin doesn't have a government. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's one of these things where um, time will ultimately tell us the answer, but it is absolutely fascinating to be living through this right now and kind of watching it all unfold uh, because it feels like every day there's something new, whether good or bad. Um, but, but it's just really, really interesting to kind of watch it all play out. So um, I appreciate you doing this. Where, uh, where can yeah, people the, find the, you? Go ahead. The, one, the, the one thing I'm doing is I'm trying to sort of uh, take notes every day. You know, I encourage anyone else to do the same thing, which is, you know, eight years from now, you're going to want to look back and see what your daily notes were, because it's going to be really easy to look at March and April as the same day. And, you know, for example, Friday, could not understand the market. Monday, what the hell happened to the equity markets? How are they up so much? And so I wrote in my little notepad, like, oh man, markets are going to get crushed tomorrow. They were flat. They were flat, you know, and like, I'm really glad I have that note. So that eight years from now, I can actually look at my daily playbook. And like every day I write a hypothesis, what will happen tomorrow and what will happen 60 days from now. I talk about my observations and it just shows you, you know, a lot of these predictions I had a lot of conviction on and they were wrong. So can we start a uh, daily tweet from Ali on what the market will do tomorrow? And then no, we'll, we'll no, measure the accuracy. I, <laughs> no way. Cause my compliance team would never let me. And I would never do that to people because that's a way, following that is a way to lose money. <laughs> I love it, man. All right, where can, uh, where can people find you on uh, Twitter and find CoVenture? Yeah, I mean, I'm at Ali B. Hamed on Twitter. You know, I, I respond to most DMs unless it's like weird. Don't send me weird stuff. And then um, knowing, your, knowing some of the people who follow you on Twitter. And then, um, yeah, I'm not gonna give my email address out. I'm around. All right. What's CoVenture's website? CoVenture.vc. All right. Sounds good, man. I appreciate you doing this. Uh, we will have to do it again. Stay cool. safe. I'll I'm... look forward to seeing lunch money later today. Yeah, I appreciate it. I feel like uh, at you're some the point- sec You're the second best person on that show. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, listen, I, I, uh, I, I don't even like admitting it, but Polina literally uh, scolds me for uh, not per not participating or performing up to uh, her standards. So it is what it is. She's really good. I think it's more about her being good than you being bad. I think you're both good. She's just gooder. I appreciate that. You're, you're, uh, you're lifting my spirits in a time of uh, dire stress. <laughs> you, Anthony, you can't help it. She's so good that how are you supposed <laughs> to ever live up to that? It's not... Uh, Ali is uh, being very kind while uh, his fiance sits in the same room as him and my fiance sits in the room with me. So we're, uh, we're both the, uh, the two intelligent folks uh, <laughs> right now. Just try to dish out compliments. All right. All right. Talk uh, soon, my friend. Thank you. Talk to you soon, dude. Hey, everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review... Simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.